Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark 12, verse 35 through 37. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, How can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be a son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. Let's pray. Almighty God, you've given us your only son to be for us both a sacrifice for sins and an example of a godly life. Give us grace that we would daily endeavor to follow in his steps. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns forever and ever, we pray these things. Amen. Do you like riddles? Do you like riddles? Anybody like a riddle? Sometimes, maybe, I see some heads going like this, I see some heads going like this, and I see some people going, riddle? No, just kidding. I think there's something about people that makes us like riddles. Uh, They get into our minds, and they get us to think really deeply about some things, or they cause us to do something that's called lateral thinking, which is making connections that we wouldn't normally make about things on a regular daily basis. For instance... What can run but never walks, has a mouth but never talks, has a head but never sleeps, has a bed, or has a head but never weeps, has a bed but never sleeps? Anybody know the answer? What do you think, Arizona? The Holy Spirit is a good answer, but not the right one for this one. (laughs) It's a river, right? A river. Runs but never walks, mouth but never talks, head but never weeps bed but never sleeps. All right, what about this one? What is so fragile that saying it breaks its name, or saying its name breaks it? What is it? Silence, that's right. You got it right, silence. Um, I think we like riddles because while they can be difficult to figure out, there's something very satisfying that happens when we finally know the answer especially if we're able to guess it correctly without being told. Um, We enjoy arguing and debating. We couldn't really do that because this is more of a sermon-type format. But if somebody asked you that and you were just sitting across the table, you could ask them questions and debate, and you could say, oh, no, this is the right answer, and they'd be like, no, that's not it. And you're like, no, but it does this, this, and this. They're like, yeah, but it doesn't do that. And and it kind of gets us talking and, and thinking. But once we know the answer, we can't unknow the answer. And we always see it that same exact way. One of the most famous riddles comes from the Bible. And it's uh, Samson's riddle in Judges chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And the answer to his riddle, his riddle had to do with uh, something sweet coming out of the one who eats <laughs> people. And it was, there was a honey, uh, honeycomb in a lion that he'd walked past on his way into the city. And so uh, there's another one 
The Queen of Sheba asks Solomon. They call him hard questions in 1 Kings 10. Daniel is able to interpret riddles and mysteries that were revealed in dreams uh, all throughout the book of Daniel. Ezekiel uses a symbolic riddle to compare Nebuchadnezzar to an eagle in Ezekiel chapter 17. And then there's a mathematical riddle, for those of you that like math, in Revelation. And it has to do with the number of the beast, 666. Even Jesus used riddles to outsmart his opponents. One of those was, how can Satan cast out Satan? And that's found in Mark chapter 3. He used a riddle in his first confrontation with the religious leaders at the temple when all of this began back in chapter 11, verse 27. And they asked him about his authority, and he said, well, if you can answer this question, then I'll tell you where my authority came from. Where did John's authority come from? It's a riddle for them. And in our text today, there's something of a riddle. But this isn't the kind of riddle with a funny answer, like who was the only person in the Bible who didn't have a father? Joshua, he was the son of Nun in UN. Yeah, that's a groaner, I know. It's not a riddle like that with a funny answer that doesn't matter. This riddle has eternal consequences. And Jesus asked these religious leaders the most important question. It's a question about the identity of the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Who is He? Who is Jesus? And you may remember this same question was brought up at Caesarea Philippi back in chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus asks His disciples, who do the people say that I am? And He lists off all these things, but then He goes and turns to them and He says, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Peter's answer was, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Peter's answer. Peter believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the one that would come and save the world. How would you answer that question today? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mark is trying to answer two questions with his gospel. The first question, who is Jesus? The second question, how do you follow him? And these are still important questions for us today, so we need to study this passage very carefully because people in our world are still asking, and maybe even people in this room are still asking, who is Jesus? And we need to have an answer for them because if we don't have the answer, if we don't have the right understanding of who Jesus is, the consequences, the consequences mean life or death. So let's... Lean in on this conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders and see what we can learn. Well, we find that Jesus is still in the temple teaching. And there's a large crowd that had gathered around them. And this, this isn't a new day. This is the same day that all the other questions were coming. They fired question after question after question to Jesus, trying to trip Him up, trying to get Him to say something that they could use to bring Him down. And so there's this large crowd by, by this time that was gathered around and Jesus was set up in His area of the temple and He'd been answering all these questions and His answers were so good that verse 40, or 34 rather says that no one dared to question Him any longer. They were like, yeah, I thought I was going to embarrass Jesus, ended up embarrassing myself, not going to ask any more questions. So Jesus takes that lull in the questioning and decides to flip it back on them and ask them a question. Who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? 
And using this question, Jesus lets the religious leaders know that he understands their theological position. You see, the scribes were the the law teachers, and they believed that the Messiah would be the son of David. In fact, nearly everyone at that time believed that the Messiah would be the son of David, come from his line, his family. In John chapter 7, verses 40 through 43, there was a, a group of people in the crowd, and they were debating about whether or not Jesus could be the Messiah. Somebody had said something, and they're like, well, could he be the Messiah? And here's what they said. Doesn't the Scripture say that the Messiah comes from David's offspring and from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So even the common people, not just the, not just the religious lawyers, the law teachers, the scribes, not just them, but everybody believed that Jesus was going to come from the line of David. And there are so many passages that point to the fact that the Messiah would be the son of David. And we don't, we don't have time to look at them all this morning, but I do want to look at one in particular. It's from 2 Samuel chapter 7, and particularly verses 12 through 16, but the whole, beginning from the, well, basically that whole chapter. David had finished conquering all of the enemies that were around him, all the enemies of God, and there was a time of rest in the nation. And During that time of rest, David wanted to show God gratitude for all that God had done for him. And so he wanted to build a permanent temple because they'd been using the mobile tabernacle up to that point, taking it from place to place to place. And David said, no, I want to build an actual building, a permanent residence. And God sent the prophet Nathan to David. And God told David that David would not be the one to build the temple, that it would not be David who would be the one that would build God's kingdom on earth. God had an even greater plan in mind, an eternal plan. Now listen to what God tells David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. When your, time come, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. This is God speaking. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. The rabbis and Bible scholars say that this is the first instance where it's spoken of that the Messiah would come from David's line, the one who would reign forever, the one whose father was God. And so the the Messiah would be a human descendant of David through his line. This is what the Jews expected. This is what they hoped for. This is what they looked for. This is what they longed for. And probably the first passage that even points to a coming Messiah at all comes from Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The rabbis taught that the offering or the seed of woman in this passage is the Messiah who would finally defeat the serpent who would crush the head of Satan. So a human offspring from a human victor would be the Messiah, would be the victor, and he would be the Messiah. And so Eve 
gives birth to Seth. And Seth has sons, and his sons have sons, until Abraham is born. And God makes a covenant with Abraham that through his seed, all of the earth would be blessed. And even though he and Sarah were old and past their years of childbearing, God blessed them with a son named Isaac. And Abraham would be tested by God in Genesis chapter 22. And the test was a sacrifice. God told Abraham to sacrifice his only beloved son. And right as Abraham is about to do it, he has the knife lifted up in the air and he's going to strike his son dead. The angel of the Lord stops him, saying, you passed, you passed. And this event was a foreshadowing of the death of Christ, the only beloved Son of God. And we'll talk more about that here in a minute. Isaac had sons, and those sons had sons until David was born. The promise is made to David that it will be one of his sons that will become the Messiah. Generations are born, and generations die. Now, when you read your Bible, do you skip the genealogies? It's confession time. You skip the genealogies, sort of kind of skim them. You're like, yeah, I don't know that name. Don't know that name. Who would name their kid that? That's crazy. <laughs> Have you ever wondered why there's so many genealogies in the Bible? Has that thought ever crossed your mind? Why are they even there? It's because God made a promise to specific people that things would happen in their family lines. The pedigree of that person was important. Their family tree was critical. And this is why the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke both have genealogies at the beginning of them. Because they're proving that Jesus came through the line of David, of Isaac, of Abraham, Seth, Adam, and Eve. The seed of the woman, the Messiah, would be a man. If Jesus was going to be the Messiah, then he would need to be the son of David. He would need to be a man. And I, don't think, I honestly don't think anyone argues with the fact that Jesus is a man. That's probably the less controversial part of Jesus and who he was. But let me list for you some things about Jesus that describe his humanity. Jesus was born like every other human being. Jesus had a body, a soul, and a spirit. He grew and matured like others. He had normal physical needs like hunger, thirst. He became weary and slept. Jesus experienced the typical human emotions, love, wonder, joy, compassion, anger, and Jesus even wept. Jesus enjoyed relationships that every human enjoys with his parents, siblings, friends, and enemies. Got some enemies? So did Jesus. He was a person. Jesus suffered. He bled, died, and was buried. There's no doubt that Jesus was a man. He had all these experiences of humanity in his life. The Messiah was to be a man, the son of David, the seed of the woman. But his father, his father was no mere man. Because Jesus continues his question, question with these scribes, and directs it towards its logical answer, which is found in Psalm 110. And he quotes that in verse 36. And he sets up the question by saying that David wrote this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
And this is exactly the same way that 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 describe how the Old Testament and the New Testament came to be written. Peter wrote, No prophecy of Scripture ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is a uniquely, divinely inspired book. And so we find here that David, Jesus is reaffirming that David wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means, which means he didn't make a mistake in his writing. All right? Didn't make a mistake in his writing. Psalm 110 is probably the most, well, it's not probably, it is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus recites verse 1, which is quoted another 33 times in the New Testament, either in part or the whole thing. And Martin Luther, the German monk who started the, the Protestant Reformation, he must have loved this psalm because he wrote a 120-page commentary just on this psalm. It's an important one. Jesus quotes David. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then comes the riddle or the mystery from Jesus that they were supposed to answer about this question, about this passage of Scripture. And it comes in verse 37. Jesus says, David himself calls him Lord. That's talking about the Messiah. He calls him Messiah Lord. How then can he be his son? If the Messiah is supposed to be the son of David, then why is David calling the Messiah Lord? That's the question. And it was probably for those that were sitting around, which is probably part of the reason why the crowd was like listening with delight because they like finally got the scribes. It was probably one of those, oh, moments, you know, for everyone that was listening. They were like, oh, oh, that's a, that's a good one. Because <laughs> apparently no one had ever thought about it up to that point. What David is saying is that the Messiah is both his son and his Lord at the same time. Time. Think about it for a moment. What father would ever call his son Lord? Even more, David's a king. And he's the king of the most powerful nation in the world. And what king, powerful king, calls anyone else Lord? Unless there's something about him that makes him different. The only answer that it can be is that the Messiah is not simply the son of David according to his genealogy, but he would be his Lord according to his divinity. You see, Jesus needed to be human. He needed to be human because he needed to be like us, to experience what we experience, to be tempted in the ways that we are tempted, and endure those temptations and overcome those temptations and not sin, in order to be the sacrifice for us to take our place. The sacrifice has to be like for like, a human for a human. And we give our life, we die in our own place. We die. We can't pay it back, but we die because of our sin. So in Luke's genealogy, Luke writes that Jesus was thought to be the son of Joseph, but Joseph wasn't Jesus' biological father. And Heli, actually in Luke's um, genealogy, Heli isn't Joseph's father. Heli's Joseph's father-in-law. And Luke is giving Mary's genealogy to prove that Jesus had the right pedigree, 
that he had the right family tree, that he came through the right line, that he came through David so that he could be the Messiah. And at the same time, he was showing in order for Jesus to be the Messiah, he could not have been Joseph's Joseph's biological son because he would carry the sin of Adam through him. Remember, the promise was that the seed of woman, Genesis 3.15, through the seed of woman. And here we have, through Jesus' biological line of Mary coming through David, and we have his divine line coming from God through the Holy Spirit, something absolutely incredible. David wrote that the Lord was sitting at the right hand of God. The Messiah would need to be both the son of David and the son of God. By the way, uh, in the Greek here, it's not very clear because they use the same word Lord and Lord, Kyrion, Kyrion. But in Hebrew, and even in the, even in the Greek translation of the, New, of the Old Testament, they use that too, so that's not helpful. But in the Hebrew, it actually says, Yahweh declared to Adonai. Yahweh declared to Adonai. Yahweh is God's personal name. It's his revealed name that he revealed to Moses when he came to him in the burning bush. Yahweh, God of all gods, said to, declared to Adonai. And Adonai was another name for God. It actually means Lord. But they used it in place of Yahweh all throughout the Old Testament because they didn't want to accidentally take the Lord's name in vain. And so here we have God saying to God, sit at my right hand. The only way that that makes sense is Jesus, right? That's the only way that makes sense. Who's seated at the right hand of God today? Jesus, right? Jesus is. I did a quick search and found 11 times in the New Testament that directly says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. 11 times. Directly said. It's alluded to other places in other ways, but 11 times directly. David's words don't work. If the Messiah is just a mere man, he must be more. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make with them. That the Messiah is something more than what they originally thought he would be. He wouldn't just be the the earthly, physical son of David, but that he would be so much more. He would also be the son of God. And this is what they had failed to see. And Jesus is going to come right out and say it in just a few chapters. Chapter 16, verse 61 through 65. The high priest, he's in there and he's questioning Jesus. And he asks Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? The Blessed One is another name for God because, again, they didn't want to misuse the name of God. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That was Jesus' answer. And the high priest gets, he's so offended, he's so angry about what has happened that he accuses Jesus of blasphemy. He says, do we need to hear anything else? And people start spitting on Jesus and slapping Jesus and they condemn him to death. They don't see the truth. They miss it. Yes, Jesus is the Son of Man, but He's also the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And so we looked at some of the things that proved that Jesus was a man. They were easy. He's hungry, thirsty, all that kind of stuff. Needed sleep. No one denies that. But what did Jesus do that proves that He was God in the flesh? There are certain things that only God can do, 
right? Certain things that only God can do. And, and it's really interesting. Like, God loves, right? And we can love. So we can express the love of God in our life to other people in ways. You know, we can show mercy and grace and all that kind of stuff. These are things that they call them the, the communicable attributes of God, the ones, that, the ones that we can take on and reflect into lives of other people. But there's things about God that only God can do. And they're called the incommunicable. It's kind of like a communicable disease, right? But it's, uh, that's good stuff. Incommunicable means it can't be passed on. And there's three big ones. God's all-knowing, He's all-present, and He's all-powerful. All right, so let's see if those things are true about Jesus. Because if Jesus is going to be God, He has to do those things, right? Right, okay. Jesus teaches with authority. He casts out hundreds, if not thousands, of demons, including a man with a legion of demons in him. He forgave sinners, and he proved it by healing them physically. He went on to heal hundreds, if not thousands, of sick people, including Peter's mother-in-law, a man with leprosy, a paralytic, a man with a withered hand, the woman with a bleeding issue, and he even brought Jairus' daughter back from the dead. Jesus has power over death. Jesus commands the winds and the waves to be still, and they listen. He walked on the crashing waves. He took a poor boy's sack lunch and multiplied the loaves and the fish to feed a multitude until they were all full. Twice! (laughs) Just in case the first one wasn't enough. He returned the sight to the blind, unstopped the ears of the deaf, restored the speech of the mute. By the way, when I said Jesus forgave sinners, only God can forgive sins. That's actually how He got... It's his start in trouble at the beginning of the gospel in chapter 3. Forgave a guy his sins, and they go, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus goes, to show you that I have the power to forgive sins, I tell you, and it was a man that couldn't walk, they ripped the ceiling open to lower him down in there. He said, take up your mat and walk. And the guy did it. He did it. He was healed. Not just physically, but he was healed spiritually. His sins were forgiven. So Jesus is all-powerful all-powerful, but Jesus is also omniscient, all-knowing. He knew where people were, like Nathaniel. He knew where Nathaniel was. He knew personal histories of people, like the woman at the well. He knew that Judas would betray him. said it a couple times, in fact. One of you is going to betray me. Well, not me. You know, so the disciples would say, no, no, I won't do that. He knew the thoughts and hearts of his opponents. He knew that one scribe, the one that is in the passage just before this, he knew that he was sincere, he knew the problems that his disciples faced and the arguments that they ha- had with one another. Like, who was going to be the greatest in his kingdom? <laughs> they were arguing about that, you know, when they were walking down the road one day, and Jesus reminded them that they needed to be servants. Jesus knows it all. Jesus knows it all. But he's also omnipresent. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Jesus says that he will be with us but he'll be with us always. That's a promise he made to 12 men, which means that he had to be with each one of them. I will be with you always until the end of the age. In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together, I'm there with you. There's two or three here, two or three across town, two or three across the state, two or three around the world. Right now, Jesus is with each one. He's everywhere. So not only is Jesus a man, Jesus is God. 
And if that's not enough evidence, Jesus also displayed his glory to his inner circle of disciples. In Mark chapter 9, a a passage that we call the transfiguration of Christ. The disciples learned something about Jesus that no one else knows, that no one else has seen. They get to see a glimpse of his glory and his divinity. What was true on the inside of Jesus was shown on the outside of him for a brief moment. The glory and power of God. And what they had only believed in their heart, in their minds, the truth that they believed was now confirmed by what they saw. Mark chapter 9, verse 3 says, His clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. And Matthew says that His face shone like the sun. For a brief moment, Jesus' true identity is allowed to shine forth in all of its glory. It's like Jesus is Superman, and he's Clark Kent, and he's got his suit on. And everyone's like, oh, look, that's Clark. He's a, he's a nice guy. And then he's like, well, hold on. I'm not just Clark Kent. I'm also Superman, right? And then they could see he was Superman. That's what's happening here. The disciples are seeing that, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God in the flesh, that there's something more about him that nobody else knows, that nobody else can see, and they won't. They won't until it's all over. But they got to see his glory. In chapter 1, verse 1 of Mark's gospel, we're introduced to Jesus as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells us from the very beginning who he is. Who's Jesus? The Son of God. And at Jesus' baptism, the heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove and a voice from heaven says, this is the voice of God from heaven, says, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I don't know, I don't, I don't know how much more evidence people need. We've seen that Jesus is the Son of David that Jesus is the Son of God. Those are the two things that have to come together in order for Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, as I was studying this passage, I had a lot of questions. A lot of questions. I spent way too much time reading about Jesus. I got a stack of books over in my office that, I, I mean, it's crazy. But there was one other question that I wanted to answer this morning. Because well, we could talk about who Jesus is and We can talk about his deity and humanity, and we can talk about the incarnation, and we can talk about how Jesus existed before time even began. We can talk about all that stuff. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to Jesus, and people have written books and books and books and books on it. But the question that I had, the one lingering question that I had, because he's talking to to scribes, he's talking to religious leaders, rabbis, some of them probably, and the question that I had was, what exactly were the rabbis looking for in the Messiah? What exactly was it? You know, and if you spent any time in any church, you'll know that the, the quick answer is they were hoping for a political warrior king who was going to come and, and conquer Rome and get, get them out from underneath Rome's foot, right? Because they were crushed under Rome's foot. And they thought he was going to come and deliver them from Rome. That's what, that's what they thought the delivering was going to be. But that's not the only thing that they had on their list. That's, all, that's the thing that we usually always say, but that's not the only thing on the list. And so I did some digging, deep digging, because I was like, I want to know what these rabbis were expecting. And if it was different than what Jesus 
how Jesus lived. And what I found out was, it answers the question even better. Jesus answers this question even better than anything else. Here's what the, Messiah, the rabbis expected from the Messiah. That he'd be a descendant of Ruth. Well, Ruth is also the great-grandmother of David. And so, and so Ruth gives birth to her son, and that son has a son named David. And so through Ruth and David come the Messiah. All right? He would be called by the name of the Lord. And what do the people say on Palm Sunday when Jesus enters on the donkey? Blessed is he who comes in what? The name of the Lord. And they also say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And so we have that 2 Samuel prophecy come back up again, right? That this son of David that would be the son of God takes his name and and extends David's kingdom forever and ever. Jesus, right? That's Jesus. It said he would restore, they thought that he would restore what was lost by Adam. When Adam sinned, he marred and distorted the image of God in man. And Jesus restored that. He made peace again with God. And he made it so that we could have a relationship with God again. He'd bring about repentance. Jesus' first sermon in Mark was, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the first words he ever said publicly. He'd bring about redemption. In a few weeks, we're going to study the cross more closely. But it was on that cross where Jesus bled, where he died, then was buried and resurrected. It was there that he redeemed us back from the destruction of sin and of death. He would bring about peace. In John chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus brings and gives His peace. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. In fact, one of the titles of Jesus in Isaiah was that He would be the what? Prince of Peace. He'd bring about freedom. And they thought this was going to be political, economic, they thought it was going to be warrior freedom. Jesus was reading. He went to synagogue one morning and He was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And He told those listening that, they, that it was fulfilled. What He was reading was fulfilled in their hearing. And here's what He said that His purpose was. It was to preach good news to the poor and proclaim the release to the captives. Galatians 5.1 tells us that Christ has set us free from the bondage of sin. Christ has set us free. He brings freedom. Not the freedom that they were looking for, but the freedom that they absolutely needed. Freedom from sin and death. And not only that, Jesus or the Messiah would bring the resurrection of the dead. And not only does Jesus rise from the dead Himself, He brings back the little girl, Jairus' daughter, right? Brings her back from the dead. Lazarus dies several days in the tomb. They're like, He probably stinks. And Jesus is like, He's going to come out, calls Lazarus, Lazarus come out. So there's two resurrections. And then when Jesus dies on the cross, it was such a powerful moment. It was such there was so much happening right at that particular moment. According to Matthew chapter 27 verses 52 and 53, it says that many saints were raised from the dead and they went into Jerusalem after Jesus was resurrected. Not only was the curtain torn in two and the earth shook and the sun blinded out, blacked out, dead people came back to life. 
Jesus would bring about the resurrection of the dead. That was a mini-resurrection. That was a preview of the greater resurrection that's going to come in the end. When the trumpet of God sounds and the dead in Christ rise and those who are alive with Him will be caught up together with Him in the air. The only, the only person that could answer all of these is Jesus. What, were, what more did they need? This is the guy they were looking for. And this is probably where, where our guys, they don't, it doesn't tell us everything that they preached about. Every, you know, it says that they taught them from the Scriptures that Jesus was Lord. And I imagine that it's because of this. This stuff is what they were looking for. And this stuff is what they were pointing out to them. That Jesus answered all of these questions. He, t- he ticked all these boxes. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That in Jesus, God became flesh and dwelt among men. That He is truly God because God is His Father. And that He's truly man because Mary is His mother. That He has two natures that are without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Two distinct natures, each being preserved, coming together to form one person, Jesus. And we could go on and on about who Jesus is and what He's like and what His, what his uh, nature is like and, you know, that He's... Yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot there. But all of it points back to... All of it comes back down to Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And as I looked this week into the nooks and crannies of this text, it's been a fun adventure. It's been a fun adventure in theology. It's been a fun adventure in doctrine, in biblical languages, historical backgrounds, and the creeds of the church, in all the arguments that have come about because uh, there's been a lot of arguments even in the church about who Jesus is and His nature. Someone got punched because of it back in the day. But the real crux, what it all comes down to is, why does it matter? Why does it matter that we believe this about Jesus and not something else? There are, there are other faith systems out there. There are other religions, other beliefs and cults who have a view of Jesus that is not this view that I've been presenting this morning. And there are many people who believe it and many people that, are, that hear it and it confuses them about who the real Jesus is and what the real Jesus is like. And this matters because it comes down to salvation. Either Jesus is who He said He is or He's not. And our salvation hangs on it. Some people say, oh, that Jesus, He was such a good man. Such a good man. And they emphasize man. But if He was only a man, then He couldn't have died for you and me. I mean, He could have, but it wouldn't have done any good. Because He couldn't have paid for our sins. The infinite infinite price our sins require cannot be paid by finite people like you and me. It's an eternal consequence It has to be paid for by an eternal sacrifice. Only Jesus could do that. He also claimed that people could be saved from their sins by believing in Him. That's what Jesus said. Believe in Me and your sins will be forgiven. And if that isn't true, then He isn't that good of a man because He would be a liar if it wasn't true, right? Good men don't lie. I've heard other people say, well, Jesus was a prophet. He was a prophet of God, but He wasn't God. A prophet of God, but not God Himself. But if Jesus weren't God, again, His sacrifice would mean nothing. Our sins have earned eternal punishment, 
and we can't make that payment, but God can. God can make that eternal payment on our behalf. And He's done exactly that in what Jesus did. God came in the flesh and took our sins upon Himself. It's called the substitutionary death of Christ. He was substituted in our place. We deserved it. Christ took it, and He took what we deserved, and He gave us what we didn't, righteousness. Cancels out the debt. I've heard other people say, well, Jesus, he was a good moral teacher. Very moral, great morals that Jesus taught. And to that, I always have a sassy answer. Well, then why aren't you living according to him? If they're so good and moral, (laughs) why don't you follow what he says? Shouldn't you listen to what he says? That's right, they should. (laughs) This God-man, Jesus Christ, was sent by the Father to accomplish their plan of salvation that they had put into place before the creation of the world. This was all planned out before one moment came to be. Only Jesus, fully divine, could pay the infinite penalty for our sins. Only Jesus, fully human, could be the substitute for humanity that we needed. He and He alone is the Savior in whom we place our trust for salvation. We have to have the right Jesus, the right gospel, in order to have true salvation. There are many people who teach something else, something less than, other than. And an inferior Christ doesn't give you salvation. It brings you condemnation. That's why it's so important to get Jesus right. That's That's why there's been so much time. That's why the guy got punched over it in one of the early meetings in the 400s. Because he said that Jesus wasn't fully divine. And St. Nicholas, they call him St. Nicholas now, punched him in the mouth. He said, no, Jesus is divine. He's fully human. He's fully divine. It matters. It matters. Because our salvation is at stake. Now, in our text, the religious leaders, they would dismiss Jesus. They'd belittle him. They were fuming with anger at his words because they were defeated by him. But Mark tells us, And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. So my question for you all this morning here as we we close is, who are you going to align yourself with today? The religious leaders who dismissed and missed out on what Christ had to offer them? Or will you align yourself with the crowd who found delight in what Jesus was teaching? Earlier, during the baptism... I asked Josh, what confession brings you to these waters? And he said, Jesus is Lord. And that's because in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. But is he Lord? See, he's all those other things already, but is he Lord in your life? Have you submitted to his call? If not, do that today. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.